I think what happened was, and he admitted this, assuming it's true, he had 24 customers, mainly friends and family, when he started the hedge fund, and he made an investment of $30,000 in an IPO, right? And it suddenly cratered. And the underwriters were supposed to come in and stabilize the price. He said they didn't. So he thought he was a good guy. He went in and took a $30,000 loss. He borrowed that from his father-in-law, Ruth's father, and he paid him back in a year. But the big insight to me was these were wealthy investors. They understood the risk. And he couldn't bear to have them lose money. He paid himself. Imagine Merrill Lynch doing that on a trade that went down. And right away, his investors said, oh, I'm not going to lose money with Bernie. This is a pretty good deal. That's how it was. Now, that's literally right at the beginning. And he says he paid them back, so nothing illegal was going on. But it gave me a saying, this guy cannot stomach losses. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, your host, and it's a pleasure to have you with us for episode number 94 in season three. My guest today is Jim Campbell. Jim is the first person on the SIDCast to ever be invited back again. Part of it is because he asked me and he asked me real nice, but the other part is I spoke to him in season two before his new book on Bernie Madoff came out. And now the book has come out not that long ago, and I thought, Okay, now we could talk about all the details. And in fact, once we heard that Bernie Madoff died, which wasn't that long ago, there's even more to talk about. And it also turns out that Jim's book on Bernie has really been getting a lot of publicity. He was on CBS Sunday Morning. He's been on a lot of other media. So the book is doing well. It's a unique book. It's a book where he had this long, long access to Bernie Madoff through mostly email exchanges that went on and on with Bernie trying to explain his point of view, which is quite an interesting thing and interesting in and of itself that Bernie Madoff, the master swindler, the Ponzi scheme genius, the guy that literally stole billions of dollars from people, including, by the way, many charities as well, that he thought he could argue his way or explain his way or justify his way out of it. Not only is that outrageous, it's also in keeping with the mindset of criminals that think they're smarter than everybody else. I'm not going to say a lot more about the episode other than, again, in keeping with season three's new introduction rules, which is let me highlight three things that we're going to talk about. So I give you a mini preview of this episode. And I'm going to do this pretty short because they speak for themselves and they're all about Bernie Madoff. Number one, who is he? Who is this person? What's his background? Where did he come from? How did he end up getting into the position that he ended up getting into? Did he do some good stuff along the way? What's his family like? How do you become Bernie Madoff in the first place. And there's a lot of what Jim shares with such deep, deep knowledge and insight about Bernie. He's almost like Bernie's psychiatrist because Bernie was always kind of making his case to Jim Campbell all the way through. And what Jim would always say is, well, you know, I'm going to vet everything you say. Basically, he was telling him, I know you're a liar. I know you're a criminal. Keep talking. I want to know about this. I want to get your point of view, but I'm going to vet everything that you say. So who is Bernie Madoff? I think we're going to get a better sense of who he is, the answer to that question in this episode than you probably ever had before. And that's interesting. Number two, why did he do what he did? Why does somebody do this? Why does somebody 
who was extremely successful, who had, by the way, two different businesses going on at the same time, one completely legitimate that would make money, an investment business, and in the same building, a few floors apart, this ultra scam business. Why did he do this? How did this happen? How do people fall into these? I mean, this is a kind of a mega trap, a multi-billion dollar series of mistakes and frauds that Bernie Madoff perpetrated. But on a much, much smaller scale, the idea that we may end up in trouble, done a bad thing, and I'm not talking about fraud or criminal activity or even ethical activity. I'm talking about just a mistake or something, you know, something goes wrong and do we want the world to know and do we cover it up and how do we keep on going and do we really want to face up to our mistakes? That's a human thing. And I'm not advocating that any one of us do this, but how did it happen with Bernie? Why? And why did he steal? Literally steal. I mean, he would take money from people, family members, charities that were helping poor people. And he would take hundreds of millions of dollars from some of these groups, including from his own family, from his wife Ruth's family. He took almost all their money. They never got anything back or hardly anything back. And they're living very, very poor as elderly people. How does he do that? How does somebody do this? That's what I wanted to know. Jim Campbell helps us understand that. And number three, and this is going to annoy you. It annoys me as Jim described it. Jim Campbell described it. But is he, is Bernie Madoff the only guilty person? He went to jail. Now he died. Justice has been done. Well, the answer is no. I mean, he is guilty. He is at the top of that pyramid scheme. The fact that there are other people that are guilty does not lessen the crime and the responsibility that appropriately gets bestowed on Bernie Madoff. But other people made a lot of money. They had to give back a lot of that money. But nobody went to jail. Nobody got badly punished. And these were in the feeder funds in particular. People that were part of this and had to have known, not stupid people, had to have known that nobody produces year after year 11% and more of profits even when the market collapses. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. And they got away with it, some of these others, and that's infuriating. There are other guilty parties, not in a fraudulent sense, but in an oversight and responsibility sense. The SEC and their lack of oversight the fact that they had so many opportunities to figure out what was going on, that they were there, they were interviewing people, they were working in his offices, and they never asked the follow-up questions. Banks that were working with him, that were clearing trades, that knew or should have known what he was doing. You know, I learned years ago when I wrote a book called Why Smart Executives Fail and looked at all kinds of different mistakes and frauds and ethical frauds and good old-fashioned strategic breakdowns. And I learned that it almost not almost always, always people, there were other people that knew what was going on. There were other people that knew what was going on, but nobody said anything. Nobody did anything. That's what happened here as well. And so you can see I'm all worked up already just thinking about all the implications and issues that we talk about in this episode of the SITCAST with Jim Campbell. But this is the guy that knows Bernie Madoff like nobody knows Bernie Madoff with access to his entire family and most importantly, long and detailed access with Bernie. And it's a story you need to hear because there's a lot of lessons, a lot of fascinating lessons in it. So let's talk to Jim, Jim Campbell. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I'm excited to be in season three with my friend Jim Campbell. How you doing, Jim? Good to see you again, and congratulations on reaching season three in your always fascinating podcast. And I just want to thank you. When we spoke before, I said, well, maybe you'll invite us back when the book comes out because that's when we need publicity. And you said, 
Yes, but I don't want to do it until after the first month. And so as you head into June, we're getting around to doing this, and I'm very excited to ask anything you want. Perfect, because I know when we talked in one of the episodes in late in season two, you gave a little bit of a preview. We talked about lots of other things as well, but now the book is out, and so it's interesting when a book comes out that's this topical. And you had a, I hope this is not in bad taste, but a pretty good advantage going in that Bernie chose to kind of say goodbye and died. Pretty close to launch date. I mean, how close was that actually? It was actually two weeks before. I was actually driving home from early morning news center radio and was in an intersection when it came across my phone and it gave me tremendous chills. And then I was going another couple hundred yards to stop at the Shell station to get a snack because I've been up since 4.30 and my phone started exploding, followed by, you're going to be on Bloomberg in 10 minutes, so you better get home. So mm-hmm. it kind of all blew up like that. I always say, people ask, well, did you have anything to do with it or did the publisher move up the date? Neither of the above. We had nothing to do with Bernie's timing, nor did the publisher have the flexibility to move it up. You know how publishers operate yourself, Sid. Yeah. So was he sick as far as you knew? I mean, yes. He'd been, well, first off, when I first started talking to him in 2011, he had kidney problems, hmm. heart problems. He then had a stroke in prison after that. I would say the last 18 months or whatever, or actually, I don't know when it started, but he's been in the prison hospital wing. And, you know, Ruth and his lawyers applied for early compassionate release so that he could die at home, but the government turned it down. Okay, so your book is called Madoff Talks. You got this kind of crazy, great access, and he talked, and he talked to you extensively, and I think he revealed, and you unveiled, a bunch of things that maybe weren't fully understood uh, before. But let's get to the beginning of this, just to fill in the details. How in the world did you get to Bernie Madoff? Who didn't want to talk to Bernie? Who didn't want to get the inside story? But you did. How'd this happen? Yeah, it's a good question. I was doing a show in 2011 in October, and Laurie Sandell is an author who had gotten to write a book that Andrew Madoff and his girlfriend, Catherine Hooper, had decided to cooperate with, and they asked Ruth to cooperate, which is a nice way of putting Ruth didn't want to, and she didn't like the book, but she did. And for some reason, she volunteered for my prep to say, you know, I can put you in touch with Andrew off the record if you want. So I called him and we talked. I started right off the bat asking him brutally tough questions. For instance, your father gave you $2.2 million to buy a co-op in Manhattan just months before this thing goes. Shouldn't you be giving this money back? Hmm. And he kind of surprised me when he said, absolutely. So we went on and talked, and then the show was live. So he said, I'm going to listen tomorrow, Jim, to see if you're saying the same thing you're saying right now. And then after that, coincidence number two, his mother was moving to Florida, to Old Greenwich, where I live. So I said, I'll take her to lunch. He set me up with Ruth. We had a great lunch. She looked like she hadn't eaten in a long time. She just devoured her chef's salad. But she was, again, very open, good Mm -hmm. chemistry. We walked out the door, and I said, can I get a picture with you? And she stopped and said, you're wired, aren't you? She thought I'd set her up. But after that, she was comfortable, and she hooked me up with Bernie. Bernie said, Ruth and Andrew have represented that you're sincere, and you can maybe help dispel all these myths about me out there. And I said, well, Bernie, this is your chance to talk to history, but I'm going to vet every single word you say for the truth. He said, Jim, I accept those terms. And the rest was history, 400 pages of communications later. Didn't come out quite the way Bernie had anticipated, but he was obsessed with telling me and rationalizing everything. Why did he want to talk? I think he had a couple of reasons. Number one, in his world, he was not a bad guy. And he was obsessed with explaining, number one, that his investment strategy really did work. And he would go through incredible details, very technical, and then say, Jim, I realize I wasn't doing any real trading. 
So that's sort of delusional, but, but he was very obsessed. He believed it, Jim? Or did he think, okay, here's this guy, and, and I'm so smart, I'm smarter than everyone else, I'll fool him and I'll finally get the right story out. Actually, the strategy does work. It can't do what he said it did, which obviously, you know, suckered everybody in. In fact, I was amazed by this. I talked to victims. I talked to traders on his 19th floor, and I don't know if people know this. He ran a side-by-side market-making business that was completely honest and more ethical than the average business on Wall Street at the same time this thing was going on. I couldn't find anybody up there who understood what the split-strike conversion strategy was, and it's actually conceptually very simple and obviously could not do what he claimed it was doing. Just to finish your other question, the other Mm -hmm. thing was that he wanted to convey that Ruth and his sons were not complicit, and he wanted to help clear their legacy as well. I'd say the third thing, which is kind of hard because it'll sound totally sociopathic, he viewed himself as a people pleaser and that his customers, his investors, his feeder funds were actually putting relentless pressure on him to produce, to produce, to produce, no losses, always up. All of this, by the way, came from his BS, his con. But in his mind, he was doing this because they had a gun to his head. And by the way, his big four investors did have a gun to his head. They bailed him out and they extorted him. Most people don't know that. Most people don't know that the biggest of the big four took $7 billion out of the fund, nine times what Bernie stole to keep the legitimate business going. Okay, hold on. There's a lot there. And I do want to return to the mind of Bernie because that's what fascinates me and so many other people. But who are the big four and what's the story there? When he started this business out, he had a very small group of family and friends. And then he had a few investors that were with him from day one. And they came to have the power to every time or several times that he had cash crises to put money in. And as a result, they got returns that were far in excess of the normal Madoff fake returns. In fact, this was a reverse Ponzi scheme. He took money from his more average net worth investors and gave it to these guys. Jeffrey Pickhauer was the biggest and totally greed-driven individual, which Bernie was not. And he literally got $7 billion out of the fund. Bernie put $800 million in the back door of the legitimate fund to keep it running, plus whatever he and his family got out of it. Norm Levy was his second guy. And the other two, the three of them took out a billion or two, plus or minus. They were the big winners. They're largely unknown. Pickhower's largely unknown. None of them went to jail, and all of them were participating in major tax fraud as well. Pickhower would literally call Madoff's administrative assistant on the 17th floor and dictate the capital gains he wanted, and then call up six months later for the capital losses to offset that. He took the real money out. Bernie did not act alone, because not only were these big four, but the feeder funds were willfully blind, the SEC was unwittingly blind, and his 17th floor, which was high school graduates, were completely witless. Mm. So Pickhauer, that's his name? Yeah, Jeffrey Pickhauer. Did he have to return any of the yes. money you just described? Yes, that's another aspect. The bankruptcy trustee went after the clawbacks in a way that I consider to be almost unethical, but it was legal. And they were going to go after Pickhauer for $2.5 billion. Bernie knew that he had more money. Bernie knew he had money at Goldman Sachs, and they got $7.2 billion out of Pickhauer back in half of what the bankruptcy trustee has ended up raising, and for which he's earned $2 billion in fees and expenses. So actually, Pickhauer ended up having to give back. He probably had $2 billion left, though. He drowned in a swimming pool in Palm Beach. It certainly was very timely, 
and obviously he was never criminally indicted or anything. They claim that it was a heart attack. His wife found him at the bottom of the pool and called in. And it was about a year, I think, after the whole thing went down. Was there more to it than that? I don't think there's any evidence of that, but it certainly was kind of a fortuitous benefit. And she's ended up very well because that foundation that was left with a couple hundred million has a couple of billion dollars in it now that they have. So somebody who's dead can't be sued for fraud. I guess that sounds kind of crazy, but that's true. I mean, no, it reminds me of Ken Lay at Enron. Do you remember? He died of a heart attack and he was, I don't remember if he was indicted. I think he was. He may have already been on trial at that point. And whatever wealth was there, I think his family was able to retain. And not only that, the way the system works is he was actually sentenced to prison, but he was on appeal. And the fact that he died, mm. his conviction was thrown out and he's found That's innocent. That's Ken Lay. That's Ken Lay. That's Ken Lay, Lay yes. Yeah. And so the money that he had, that he got through various very different types of schemes, that stays in the family or stayed in the family. Yes, as long as it hadn't been taken away. Yeah, as long as it had not already been taken away. Justice plays out in a lot of very unusual ways. But go back to Bernie, and you said two things that sounded like the opposite, and I want to understand it better. So Bernie has lots of excuses, Bernie Madoff. But one of them is, you know, he had a gun to his head and he was forced to do something. And you said that actually there's some truth to that, but that's also an excuse for him knowing full well what he did. Could you unpack that a little bit more? Yes. Bernie saw himself, as many narcissists do, as a victim. Okay, so he felt he was a victim of these guys. He grew to hate Pickhower in particular. So that is part of his whole rationalization, right? But I told you before, when he says an average investor came to me and either he lied to get into my fund because he was below the net worth or he was relentlessly pressuring me for results, he's basically rationalizing that he ran a Ponzi scheme. The feeder funds had to be complicit. But he set up the compensation scheme to basically bribe them. So you cannot excuse him. Now, the big four were bad dudes in the sense that they knew they could take advantage of the fact that he was dependent on them bailing him out. Yeah. And so it's very interesting. He's got this defense in his head that they forced me to do illegal activities, really, to commit fraud, to do this Ponzi scheme. But he did it. Nobody would have been forcing him to do anything like that if he was just a legitimate business person. Not only that, nobody really knew it was a Ponzi scheme. They thought it was front-running. They thought it was one thing or the other. The big four obviously knew he was short cash, which makes them, in my mind, fairly complicit. But all these folks left their money in right till the end. Yeah, so they knew that he needed cash, and they gave him cash infusion. Why would that be if it was such a successful fund, if it was generating 12% a year, year after year after year? Why was he able to do that, you mean? or Why, why did- would he, from the investor's point of view, many investor's point of view, why would they think that Bernie needed money if he keeps generating 12% well, returns? That's exactly right on the big four. The Obviously, the average investors, nobody knew that. And nobody knew, nobody had insight to how much money he really had except for one source who missed it, which was J.P. Morgan, because they could see into his account. But not only did they miss it, they thought it was for his legitimate business as well. They knew that he was short money, those insiders, Mm -hmm. but they did not know the scale. And the feeder funds, none of them had any clue. They knew, though, that he had to be doing something because he passed all the fees on to them. And they had evidence in myriad ways because he refused to do due diligence, which was their job, you realize. Did Bernie Madoff think he was smarter than everyone else? That's a good question. I put that in the category of there are people that say he had some psychic release or endorphins or something pulling this off, running circles around the SEC, which he did. But I think he was much more tormented than that. 
And I think it was the demons of his ego couldn't figure out how to get out of it because he could not accept. This is a fundamental thing. He could not accept losses. How can you be in a trading business and not accept losses? His legitimate business, he was earning commissions, right? Market up, market down, I get commissions. Mm -hmm. He goes into this business, he goes, holy cow, I can lose money. He couldn't deal with that. Stopped trading and made it up. I've been told by insiders of the family that they think he had a thing about secrets. And he loved having secrets because nobody, you talked about the fence in his brain. He had this tremendous compartmentalization so that nobody knew the whole thing. And if you understand Wall Street firms, they're organized that way with Chinese walls to keep information flows from going where they shouldn't, i.e. the M&A department can't be leaking money to the traders on mergers that might be happening. He exploited that brilliantly, just like he exploited the SEC, which I can tell you about. But I don't believe that he sort of got off on it, if you will. He had all kinds of these ticks and eye things and all kinds of nervous OCD-related things that I think were sort of leading indicators that something was wrong. Did you look into his childhood and years growing up and if there's any clues? There's an example of Bernie's lack of insight. Because if you look at his father, his father continuously failed. His father failed at a sporting goods business. They even ran a brokerage firm, securities firm, out of their house, which most people don't know, which also was shut down by the SEC for failure to submit reports and stuff. And I asked him, you know, Bernie, your father, you know, had this series of failures. The rumors were it was embarrassing in the Jewish community that you guys were in in Queens. And do you think this impacted you? And he first, he would say no. And then he got around to saying, Jim, maybe this had an impact on his son, as if he was a third person, you know? Mm. You know, maybe some other... And he said this, too, about... He said, you know, nobody knows why Madoff did this. And I would say, well, Bernie, you're Madoff. (laughs) He'd go, well, the SEC couldn't find it. Why should anybody else be able to? So he occasionally talked about himself in third person, not all the time. And it was when there was some... I don't know, some more sensitive thing about him, something that called for some insight about himself when you were challenging him or asking him. So he had these two businesses. So one was legit all the way through, as you described, right? All the way through until he started pumping money in to keep it solvent because he couldn't fire anybody either in the firm. The firm got too much overhead. Decimalization came and reduced margins. He was very good on innovation and cost control, but he ended up carrying too many people and nobody realizes. But the business itself, while it was legitimate, was worth $3 billion independent of the hedge fund, which was the Ponzi scheme. So yeah, it was successful. It broke down the monopoly of the New York Stock Exchange. It legitimized discount brokerage firms. In a way, he was a populist. Do you think that he was a financial genius of sorts? As you describe, he broke down the barriers and the rules of Wall Street. That doesn't happen every day. Oh, I think he was a genius in exploiting opportunities. The NASDAQ was then pink sheets, not transparent prices, and all these exchanges were unconnected. He saw the vision to put that together and to get transparent, live, real-time pricing. His first Ponzi type of business was hybrid convertible securities. At that time, it was taking three weeks for the back offices to do all the conversion. He figured out if he built his own back office, he could do it in a couple of days. Another big innovation. And then, of course, that ultimately led to this split-strike conversion strategy that was opaque and everything, but looked brilliant because he was called the Jewish T-bill, as safe as the U.S. Treasury. He was delivering that 11% at the end, no matter what. At what point did this business become a Ponzi scheme? Right at the beginning, or when he ran some trouble, or he couldn't accept some losses and had to do... When did this happen? Great question. Bernie maintained to me 
and he would maintain it right till his death that the Ponzi scheme didn't begin one day before 1992. He told me a story that he hadn't told anybody else, and by the way, not even his own lawyer, because he waived attorney-client privilege like so could speak with Ike Sorton. He told Ike a story that made no sense to me at all. But anyway, he said, and this is what you would assume. I'm running a legit business. I ran into a bad trade. I lost a bunch of money. I made the decision that I'm going to double down like a gambler does and try and get it back, you know, run a Ponzi scheme for a little bit, fix it, no one will ever know it. Now, that's a classic gambler's mistake, which he made. And number two, it's illegal. So then I go in and vet this whole story and look through the reports that the forensic investigators did, the bankruptcy trustee, my own stuff. And it looks like he began this almost exact same time, which means go back to his brain again and that fence you talked about. He's running maybe the most legitimate business on Wall Street and definitely the biggest criminal enterprise over time simultaneously. And he hired the people for both. Downstairs, it was unsophisticated high school grads. Up here, it was business school graduates. He was one of the leading innovators in technology on Wall Street then. And he ran the downstairs business on an IBM AS400 that was obsolete after 1980s. And he did that because? That was the machine that he'd originally started on. He was comfortable with it. And you got to remember, everything he was producing was fake. The statements were fake. The confirms were fake. So this computer was essentially just a printer. He says 1992. Is that correct? Or do you think he started no, I think right it, from No, I think it could have been as early as the early 70s. And when did he start that business in the first place? He incorporated it in 1962, and it was beginning to be successful by around 68, around that time frame. I think what happened was, and he admitted this, assuming it's true, he had 24 customers, mainly friends and family, when he started the hedge fund, and he made an investment of $30,000 in an IPO, right? And it suddenly cratered. And the underwriters were supposed to come in and stabilize the price. He said they didn't. So he thought he was a good guy. He went in and took a $30,000 loss. He borrowed that from his father-in-law, Ruth's father, and he paid him back in a year. But the big insight to me was these were wealthy investors. They understood the risk. And he couldn't bear to have them lose money. He paid himself. Imagine Merrill Lynch doing that on a trade that went down. And right away, his investors said, oh, I'm not going to lose money with Bernie. This is a pretty good deal. That's how it was. Now, that's literally right at the beginning. And he says he paid them back, so nothing illegal was going on. But it gave me a saying, this guy cannot stomach losses. And that's an interesting insight, that that is the driver. When you look at not necessarily criminal behavior, although that's what this is, but just failure and breakdown and mistakes, sometimes ethical, sometimes business, sometimes strategic, and certainly sometimes legal. What's the trigger? So some people are criminals or the so-called bad apples, but more often than not, they're going along, doing whatever they're doing, and something goes wrong and they do not react well to it. And then they start to compound their mistakes. And then of course the cover-ups start. And once you're in it, you go deeper and deeper. And then how do you get out? The only way to get out is admit that you've done something bad and you can't do that because your prestige just keeps going up because you're successful. Is that pattern part of the story? That is absolutely a brilliant analysis. You've done so much leadership work because the initial perception is this is greed. You know, he's stealing his customers' money. And, you know, the guy that runs the Ponzi scheme usually runs off with all the money. Ponzi schemes can't last long normally. And he wasn't making all the money. He wasn't doing it for greed. He was doing it to maintain his reputation in any way that he could. 
How long did you talk to him? It was a total of over eight years. Once I got 400 pages, I said, I don't know what to do with this. I've never written a book, but it's book material. So I said, I got to leave you for a while, see if I can sell the book. And then I got to vet everything you said, right? Because, you know, in theory, you could have lied your butt off to me. And so there was a gap there. And then I went off and did this stuff. By the time I came back, he was pretty sick. The family had told him to shut up. And Ruth, who I was very close with texting and lunches and emails, she decided that she was done talking too after I got the contract, even though she supported the book all along. So they pretty much went silent, which the only negative, because I had everything, was when I uncovered stuff that they hadn't told me about, it would have been nice to go back. Mm -hmm. Bernie would have not told the truth, but I would like to have pinned some stuff on Ruth that surprised me. But I had enough. I told you the account was at J.P. Morgan, right? And J.P. Morgan, it was called the 703 account, which is the last three digits, infamous account for the Ponzi scheme. I was a little stunned to find out Ruth was still balancing it in 2007. It went down in 2008. It doesn't mean she understood what was going on because there was just, you know, millions and millions in and out every day, and she balanced it like a checking account. And then she hit a point where it was too much for her, and she turned it over to the CFO. But that stuck me as a little bit surprising that she would be balancing balancing account that late in the game. Again, I'm almost sure she didn't understand what she was seeing, and I could explain why. Did Ruth Madoff end up with a lot of money at the end of all this? They took $100 million from the government in her settlement. They left her with an audited $2.5 million. 500000 of that at least went to lawyers, and that's what they left her. She was responsible for every expenditure over $100. She had to submit the receipt to the bankruptcy trustee. She was living in an apartment for 2900 a month. She was driving a beat-up old car that she said was dangerous around terms. So she didn't profess any real angst or complaint that her life went from $800 million net worth to that overnight. She was just living. It seemed a lonely life to me, but, you know, she was just going forward. Did she know what her husband was doing? No. If you understood Bernie's ego, he would never have admitted. This is hard for people to understand, and there's also a lot of evidentiary material that I dug up. But if you understood his brain, he would not have been able to tell his family that he had resorted to criminal behavior to keep this business going. Did Ruth turn a blind eye? You know, I don't think so. She went and lived, by the way, with her sister and brother-in-law after this went down in Florida, and Bernie wiped them out so bad they were driving an airport limo service, and you don't think they would have taken her in if they thought she was complicit. You know, he confessed the day before in his apartment on the Upper East Side, and I asked Ruth, what did you say when you heard this? And she said her first question was, what's a Ponzi scheme? Did she open up with you by what she felt? She was cult-like programmed by Bernie. Mm -hmm. So initially, this was a real sore subject. The sons, when they heard in the apartment, they didn't go to move their money or cover up or say, Dad, we'll give you a week. They went and turned him in on the spot. And Ruth went with Bernie, and that really upset the sons. So there was a schism there for a while. She gradually became deprogrammed. By the time I met her, she, in her mind, viewed herself as estranged from him. He was still emailing her and calling her. When she started to talk to me that she realized he'd had some affairs, I don't want to make her sound sociopathic, but that really, really bothered her. They'd been together since the age of 13. She had cult-like devotion to him, although they were like teenage jealousy to you. They would be at these functions for the firm or parties, and they would have little jealousies as to who was talking to who. So it was a very interesting dynamic. Wow. But the sons were different. They turned him in right away. Right away. Remember I told you that Bernie said, I'm going on Andrew's representation, that you're a sincere guy. 
Well, when he confessed on December 10th, 2008, arrested by the FBI on the 11th, he never spoke a single word to his father ever again. I would say, Andy, go and talk to him for your own closure. He said, never, he's dead to me. And of course, Mark, you know, committed suicide two years to the day of Bernie's arrest. Mark was a tormented individual, could not deal with it. Andy was extremely resilient, tough. He'd beat cancer a couple times. He had cancer. He felt that Bernie killed his brother quickly and him slowly. I said, you know what? He kept you out of it. You were upstairs at what I call the front of the restaurant. You know how mafia operates. The restaurant looks legitimate. And downstairs, you've got all the criminal activity or in the back office. And I said, he kept you out of it. He said, no, he was using us. We were just up there to be the legitimizers. So yeah, they were totally distraught. They never dealt with him again. What did Bernie say when this topic came up about his sons and Annabelle? He, he said he had a lot of remorse. He said he understood they could not forgive him. And he tried to make it clear to me that he was going to tell me nonstop that they had no involvement in it. He trapped them in the firm because, you know, people will ask me, well, why didn't they quit? Well, the first thing is they wanted the firm name change to Madoff Securities so that there was a succession plan in place. And Bernie would not do that because obviously he knew why he was. He couldn't do that. Number two, Andrew wanted to know in particular what the hell he was doing downstairs in this fund that was so successful. Bernie basically told him, keep your nose out of this. You run the front business, and when I die, the hedge fund is going to be closed down. And so he wanted to go to Goldman Sachs to figure if he could fly on his own, and because his father wouldn't tell him what was really going on. And again, this is control. And by the way, people in the firm will verify this. He manipulated, browbeat, and bullied Andrew into staying, and he did stay. Wow, got to take a breath here. Yeah, it's, um, pretty, it's pretty amazing. It really is. Did you meet with Bernie face-to-face? -face? No, the prison vetoed it every time we asked including in 2019 when we're getting close to submitting the manuscript, I said, Bernie, let's meet so we can say we met face to face. And he said, that's fine, but no talk on the crime, just as friends. Make sure you apply as a friend of the family. I applied as a friend of the family. They vetted me and they said he's writing a book. No way. So they vetoed it. I never got to see him face to face. And then, of course, the last year and a half, he's been in the hospital. Right. Did he ever cry when he was talking to you? Cry? Yes. It was all by email and phone because, sorry, email and handwritten letters. The phone, I was not allowed to tape prison phone calls. Uh -huh. And you're not allowed to be on the phone more than 15 minutes. So it wouldn't work. He did call the house once, collect, which they have to do. I wasn't here. My wife turned it down. And let me tell you, Sid, and my wife wouldn't accept that. He was upset, really. That's very funny. You don't hang up on Bernie Madoff. No exactly. Matter what, no matter what. Yeah. So could this be happening today in some other Wall Street firm or any other firm? I talked to Harry Markopoulos a lot about this. He's the whistleblower hero. And they didn't understand Ponzi schemes. They never had the right people on the examination teams to uncover a Ponzi scheme, and they refused to listen to Mary. They didn't understand what he was saying, literally, and B, they thought he was a competitor of Madoff, so it was bad grapes. After this was over, he worked very closely with them. He says that they can catch about 90% of the Ponzi schemes. There's still a lot going on, by the way. You can track them every month in terms of starting them. And he says the only way that Bernie could happen again was offshore. He thinks an offshore Ponzi scheme could still work. That doesn't mean the SEC's changed their culture to catching people up front. They have not. They have not. What could the average or what should the average person do that has their investments? And I'm not talking about someone with hundreds of millions, but the average person that might have hundreds of thousands or a couple of million. Yep. What that's can a, they do? that's a perfect question. I end the book on the reforms here, systemic reforms, but I start with individuals. And I said, you know, you got to think of a Hippocratic like oath. 
which is what the doctors use, which is do no harm, okay? That means, number one, understand what you're investing in, okay? None of these Madoff investors knew what the heck he was doing. And it was an affinity crime. It was 85% Jewish investors and Jewish charities. And it was just passed right along. We don't know how he's doing it, but it's dead set. He's a great guy. The regulators think he's, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread, which was true. And there were a lot of rumors on Wall Street that it wasn't working, though, or it wasn't honest. But they didn't bother to find out. Here's another thing. Any investment that faces market risk, you cannot guarantee a return. And he was guaranteeing people on January 1st what they were going to make by December 31st. That's not possible. So you don't understand it. You can't get a guaranteed market rate return. And number three, the way to get rich is the way Warren Buffett says to get rich, which is to invest in low-cost index funds regularly over time and get rich slowly. And I say the market has done 9% a year average compounded growth in 100 years. At the end, Bernie was offering 11%. I say take the 9% and sleep at night. That's what Mm -hmm. you should do. Keep it simple. You just mentioned also that there were a lot of charities that invested with him. And some of these charities, I recall, well, I guess every charity qualifies, but some of these charities, it's just unconscionable to think about how he would take their money knowingly and know what he was doing. Did you ask him about that? I was told beyond the insurities that it was unconscionable and unpardonable within the Jewish community to rip off other Jewish folks. That, you know, with the history of Jews being thrown out of so many countries, you don't rip each other off. And that's part of the reason he was so successful, because nobody dreamed that he would do that. Investors were told, hedge fund managers, Bernie can't be doing what he's saying he's doing. It's not possible. doesn't work. And they would say, I appreciate your advice. Bernie would never do anything to us. So did he feel bad now? You know, he would even use the words, Jim, remorse is a complex thing for me. And until you've managed high net worth investors' money, you can't understand what you were saying. And I was basically, and this is an exact quote, I was a product of the corrupt culture on Wall Street. In other words, blaming someone else for In other words, blaming somebody else. And you know what he would do with these charities? He would go in, say, make a $250,000 donation, and they'd say, you know, Bernie, we've got this $10 million. We don't even know what to do with it. And he'd say, give it to me. I'm not even going to charge you to run it. Just give it to me and boom, boom. So he gave a little you know, donation and he took away a ton of money on the back end of it. He also had an affair with the woman at Hadassah. Hadassah is a women's and children charity. I think they had 70 million with them or something like that. But they had an affair and I got an insight out of that. First off, it had to be true that she wrote a book and there was so much in it that psychologically fit him. And I would say, okay, Bernie, it's tangential. I'm not going to make a judgment on your moral life or anything like that. But is it true? Because I'd like to see that you can tell the truth on something that's tangential. Absolute lie. She was a stalker. Never happened. Now, Bernie's secretary told me she used to go make reservations on the hotels and that she had to scout the rooms out first. But the insight that came out of this was his need for control was so much it extended to investors. And she was an investor, an important investor, and he claimed not even to like her to his secretary, but it helped him control. There's examples of this that I don't even put in the book that would blow people's mind in the passive-aggressive nature that it would have been. Well, now you're making me think that you got to share one or two of those that are for a public podcast. (laughs) You know, let's just say that one of his major investors, he had an affair with his wife. That's as far as I'll go. And just think about the implications of that. He sure sounds like an all-around good guy. (laughs) 
So the book came out the end of April, and the coincidence of Bernie's death around the same time brought this into top of news again, which when you write a book is actually really, really good news because you're now part of the news, not just a really interesting story from 10 years ago, but a story that's relevant now. And so you, was it Sunday morning? CBS uh, Sunday morning. CBS Sunday morning, which by the way, is like a genius show. I don't know how they do it, but every time we watch, my wife and I, it's like everything we're thinking about or know about or care about, I guess we're the target market. <laughs> and, exactly. uh, Six million viewers. And it's yeah. all influencers. In fact, they trace that if you're on with your book, Sid, they can tell you how many spots it's going to go up on Amazon. My book went up 400 spots within three hours of being on that show. Yeah. And I was a five-minute segment. And by the way, they're incredibly nice people, all of them, from the camera person to the woman at CBS who booked me to Jim Axelrod, all very decent and they usually have two-month lead times, like 60 minutes, you know? And they only had from that Wednesday till Sunday. They were still calling me Saturday night at 5 p.m. before it aired Sunday. So they spent a lot of time. They taped two hours worth of stuff to get five minutes. You know, it's true that there are some media outlets that are really powerful in that respect. Obviously, New York Times and Wall Street Journal are probably at the top of the list. I remember when I wrote Why Smart Executives Fail, which is now 18 years ago, which is hard to imagine. Wall Street Journal had a review and it skyrocketed like instantly. It was really, and, and that was subject too, with me, Sid, because that, I can't get a review out of them yet. They do what they want to do. Yeah. And you could ask all you like, but they'll do what they want to do. But that review, by the way, so this will make you feel better, came out more than two months after the book was oh, published, okay. which is really kind of interesting. So how does it feel to be kind of the newsmaker rather than the person interviewing the newsmakers? I learned a lot about how the media operates out of this. I told you I got to that snack place and then I was home on Bloomberg. The New York Post calls me and the editor says, I want you to write 2,000 words. And if you do that, I'm going to tease it on the front page. And I said, you mean in the afternoon you want me to write 2,000 words and I'm doing other interviews? So I whipped this stuff out and I wanted to see the next morning if he was actually going to be good to his word. So I get out of bed and I go to the mobile app from the post and it's number one on their list right there. But he called it an op-ed. So I said, oh, he stuck it in the back, but it's trending well on the app. So I went and bought a paper and there it is on the front page, Madoff's pen pal. And then two full pages on I think five and six. So that was amazing. The next thing that struck me was I have this American Express corporate bill that shows Ruth charging $57,000 on it in one month, which was part of the family using the firm as a piggy bank. It was a private firm, but it was, that's still a little obsessive. It had nothing to do necessarily with being indicative. She knew it was a Ponzi scheme. So I don't view it as the be-all, end-all. Anyway, it was in one of the articles, and all of a sudden, from all over the world, I'm seeing... $57,000 in the headline. None of these people are calling me. They got it out of wherever it was in. And these foreign languages, I recognized two things, 57000 and Jim Campbell. And that's all, the rest was all in foreign languages. We got first serial rights with Newsweek, which we set up before Bernie died. So they ended up feeling like the luckiest guys on the world. We got into airmail on an article that I wrote, and they ended up completely upset with me when they found out that it ran for them. When I did the 2,000-word thing, I had no exclusivity either way. So why was I going to write de novo? I took 
maybe a couple paragraphs out of the airmail thing. They found out about it and they were like completely upset with me. And then I find out it's because Graydon Carter hates the Post and all this stuff going on <laughs> underneath that I found about. So I found out that A, these media guys steal each other's stuff, send it all around the world, don't even bother to ask me. Now I got to tell you the uh, tabloid calls. I get a call from the Daily Mail, I think it's called in London. And they say, do you know who's getting Bernie's body out of the Bureau of Prisons? And I said, are you being serious? Is this a serious question you're asking me? And I said, no, I don't know who has Bernie's body. And then I got another question about, we saw that there's a rumor that Bernie had a sex ring going on on the 17th floor Mm. with his staff. And that one I also just laughed at. They didn't run with that either. So it was just mind boggling. And it was one call after the next. And I was still surprised that more people didn't ask me directly versus just take somebody else's article. Now, I've done an interview for Perry Match for the Times of Israel. I'm about to do Calgary, so that'll be four nations. And England, the Guardian wrote a great review and did an article. The Guardian is actually a terrific newspaper with a big online uh, presence. The newspaper business, as you well know, is not exactly the best business. And The Guardian is clawing themselves back from where they were before. I've always been impressed with their reporting. But it's true. You know, the articles go floating around. Things get picked up. I think you should feel fortunate that your name actually is still in there as it gets passed along, because who knows what happens. And the fact that the Post wanted you to write an article is common. All these media outlets, they want you to write for them. That's cheap. That's free, actually. They said they're paying me $500. i have never gotten a check, but that's what they said. They okay. did, I didn't know that, by the way, until the day after when someone said, well, you got 500 I said, I didn't know that. The Wall Street Journal will pay for certain things, and that's maybe part of, what is that, News Corp that owns them together. Yeah. So do you have any advice for would-be authors, not necessarily a business book, so it could be, And I'll go even further. You've interviewed many, many people. It's why I've been on your show a few times and why I like to talk to you. You know how to ask great questions. And that's what you did with Bernie that I think has helped bring that book alive in a way that's really becomes a page turner. And I'm curious about your advice to other would-be writers, interviewers on how do you get people to tell you I don't know about the truth because you also don't know whether Bernie told you the truth, but he's a pathological liar. And so that's a tough standard, but as close to the truth as you possibly can get. First off, I was able to vet everything. So I have a pretty good idea what was lies and what was not. And you raised an interesting question in my mask in my own mind, because Catherine Hooper was this girlfriend of Andrew's, right? And she ended up being an instrumental source and getting me in the family. And she sent me a letter just yesterday or two days ago saying she really appreciated how I pursued the truth. And what I find interesting is if you look at this, Andrew Madoff, Ruth Madoff, Bernie Madoff, and Catherine Cooper didn't know me from Adam. And they trusted me with their family legacy. And I don't know quite why, to be honest. (laughs) Now, Bernie obviously had an agenda, but the rest didn't really have an agenda other than that they wanted the world to know that maybe they weren't complicit, which everybody, including the FBI, assumed they were. I knew stuff the FBI didn't know because I was inside the family too, but I vetted everything and I don't really know. Now, one thing I do is I do a lot of prep for guests, which they really appreciate. And number two, if you do that and you do it with respect, you can ask really tough questions. I had to ask a CEO of a microprocessor company, a big one. There was a rumor he had an affair with an insider trader who was convicted. And I had to ask him that on the air. When we got off, I apologized. He said, no, you had to ask me that. And I respect that. Jamie Dimon is another one. He's the CEO of J.P. Morgan, right? Mm -hmm. If you read this book, J.P. Morgan completely screwed up in three different ways. 
Jamie was at Tufts with me. So I asked Jamie, and he's recovering from major heart surgery, which shows you what a sociopath I am. And I asked him, you know, can I talk to your people about this? He gave me the people that were involved from the legal regulatory side within the company that had to go fix it up. And he let me talk to them. I just thought that was a sign of great character. What did you learn in the J.P. Morgan situation? Why did they miss this? They were on the inside, and it was their job to call the red flag if it needs to be called. They missed so many red flags. And it turned out, I told Jamie, this is really important you allowed me in because willful blindness is criminal, which I believe the feeder funds committed, even though they haven't been prosecuted. And I had J.P. Morgan in that bucket, right? And after talking to his people, and it's partly rationalization, but I'm sure... Their belief was that they didn't have the horizontal systems in place because there was the UK division. I counted six divisions within JP Morgan that had touch points with Bernie. They weren't communicating. They didn't have a way to get through. The UK eventually turned them in to their regulatory body there, but it didn't get back to the US JP Morgan, much less the US SEC. And they made a case that I understand from that perspective, it was inability to connect the dots. But I'll tell you this, when you get below the scenes, a lot of ugly stuff. They smelled bad stuff. Madoff blocked them from doing due diligence. They got their own money out of hedge funds and left their clients in. So Jamie's going to see, he's not going to be happy with what I wrote, but I do have great respect that he did not try and block me. Yeah. And when you talk about connect the dots, it really touches a nerve because that's something that I found from my own research in many, many companies. And then maybe the most prominent example of this is the 9-11 commission report where there were so many clues about so many things and different government agencies had insight, different people in these agencies had insight, but it was never combined. It was never, and this is a generalized problem in large organizations. It doesn't surprise me at all that you describe, you know, what happened in JP Morgan, a gigantic global company, complex company. Bernie Madoff and his fund is just one of many, many businesses that they interact with. Not that it excuses them, but that's a fact. And to connect the dots is such a big challenge. I see it in kind of mundane things when I'm working in companies. And then you see it in some of these big things that we're talking about here as well. And I'll give you just one example under the mundane kind of headline. I had a client that was a global pharmaceutical company where I was coaching executives all over the world through phone calls a series of phone calls, and they would be working on a leadership challenge, whatever they needed to work on, whatever was top of mind for them, and I would coach them on that particular challenge. And I kept seeing the same challenges come up and handled in all sorts of different ways in 10 different countries. And it was really kind of amazing to see that there was a really deep knowledge base in this company that I was the only one who knew it in a random way in that I had this kind of these 50 touch points. And so I saw it. And 50 is nothing in a company that has, you know, 10,000 managers. But I saw that. But they had no idea. And because these are confidential conversations, I can say, you know, Jim, I just talked to so-and-so in India, and she's dealt with exactly the same problem. And I bet that she'd have some insight for you. The amount of money that's lost, if you get right down to it in organizations because of this problem, is enormous. So it's very interesting that you see this. As let, me, well. let me say, what, jumping on what you said, the 9-11 thing, that is a brilliant analogy because one of the big things here, forget connecting the dots within J.P. Morgan, the SEC then, its branches did not have diplomatic relations with each other. SEC Boston didn't want to talk to SEC New York. None of them wanted to talk to Washington where they had special expertise. The expertise in Washington figured out Bernie was fake in two hours. It didn't get back. And then you say, you know, Sid saw these things across the sphere. 
At one time, the SEC had two examination teams at Bernie's place, and Bernie was the only guy that knew there were two in there. He informed the SEC. They didn't even know. They didn't even know. So why does the SEC operate that way? I don't see the logic other than political battles, which, of yeah, course, I think we, we I get. think it's improved, by the way, on that uh-huh. at least. It had a couple of flaws. Number one, not invented here. They didn't talk to Harry Markopoulos as an example. Let me give you another example. Bernie could have been arrested in five minutes. The um, DTC is the clearing entity on Wall Street called the Depository Trust and Clearing Company. And Bernie told me his account number was 0646. Every single trade he made could be traced through there. And the examination team asked for that information for the hedge fund, and he gave them the number. And he says, it was Friday night, Jim, I expect to be arrested on the weekend because there was no IA, investment advisory business, in the 646 account. And the SEC never called it. So they never saw something that was in front of them. It was exactly right in front of them. Now, he exploited the silos in two ways. Number one, investment advisory teams and broker-dealer teams are separate, okay? And they only put broker-dealer teams in his place. And they ended up investigating the same thing they cleared him of every time, front-running, which made no sense. They did not know how to detect Ponzi schemes. He didn't register as an investment advisor, which was illegal. And they never had examiners in that know all the steps to do that. So he exploited that regulatory silo. The other thing he did is he let the SEC examiners speak with nobody in the firm but himself and his right-hand man on the 17th floor, Frank DePascali. Now, nowhere else does anybody get away with that on Wall Street. The CEO usually doesn't even spend time with examiners. The final reason back then was they were young lawyers, didn't understand the markets, and they were looking for jobs on Wall Street. So they were looking to get in and out of there quickly. They didn't want tough cases. They wanted to check off as many quick ones as they could. Yeah, that's a harsh but unfortunately accurate assessment, I think. You get really, really smart young people that start in the SEC, and they don't make a lot of money there. Maybe there are some that get the passion and see the value and want to stay there, but most are thinking about you know, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and this is a springboard to them, which provides a pretty good incentive not to ask really, really tough questions, even if they're suspicious. So how do you feel right now, Jim, after all this? I mean, it's not over in the sense that there's a lot more publicity. And in fact, there might be a movie or something like that or a TV series. Documentary Uh, first. The movie, you know, would be later. And I'm only knocking on wood on that. If you knew what they're paying right now, author's money, right, because of this streaming demand, it's mind boggling. And apparently there's a lot of demand for, uh, I see this myself, before the book even came out, I had three documentary companies approach me. There is demand for a Madoff documentary, which would have surprised me a little bit because I thought there was a lot of stuff out there. But there is an ongoing search that you can uncover in Google, which is, is there a Madoff documentary on Netflix? And so all these guys, what they do is they come to you and they try and say, we want to do your book, Jim. And then they disappear to go to Netflix and see if they can sell it, right? CAA, who I just signed with, is going to do it different. They know there's so much demand. They were thinking of going right to Netflix directly. And they have a director in mind and everything. But it's clear that somebody wants to do a Madoff documentary. And my book right now is the only one that's not only recent, but that actually looks at the whole crime. No other book has looked at the SEC, SIPC, J.P. Morgan, feeder funds, all the, you know, on and on and on. and has the whole thing in the big four, you know, because yeah. it's not a story of just Bernie behind a curtain. Is anything going to happen to this big four that you've kind of no, they're, discovered they're, that they were? Pickhower's dead. Levy's dead. Shapiro, I think, is dead. 
So no, nothing's going to happen. We haven't even talked about it. There's two conspiracies I believe the government completely missed. One is it was a tax evasion scheme as much as it was a Ponzi scheme, and that's fraudulent. The second one was an international money laundering scheme, particularly through Sonia Cohn, the feeder fund in the Bank Medici in Austria. She was bringing in huge nine billion bucks to be total in oligarch dirty money. Russian dirty money, Colombian drug lord dirty money. This has also never been looked at. I got access to Bernie's entire diaries and every phone number of every investor. There are feeder fund people in Europe that if I'd called, I might have been killed. That sounds like a little bit of an exaggeration there, Jim. It's absolutely not, because I know somebody that was threatened. <laughs> got a call from somebody saying, you're asking the wrong questions. But these people... No, maybe these... for me, I, you know, I'm not, you know, yeah. I don't want to make myself sound like that. But this is real tough stuff. But these are people then that got swindled by Bernie, or did they get their money back? They got swindled, yeah. But the thing is, interesting in Europe, a lot of the heads of the funds were fed through banks, right? And the banks were completely embarrassed to A, admit that, and B, that they were money laundering. They settled. They gave a lot of the principal value back. You know, in the U.S., which to me is a scandal unheralded, the SIPC got people paid back by going to one set of Madoff victims and taking the money back and giving it to another set. They didn't use SIPC fund money like the FDIC would do, for instance. So it was a different deal over here. So a lot of people, you might say, did better over there because the banks wanted to cover it up, to be honest. Yeah, that's interesting because I was thinking if, you know, some difficult investors, let's just say, I mean, if they're going to get mad at people asking questions, they're going to get really mad at someone who takes their money. Well, so let me tell you something. You want an example of that? I'll tell you, forget Jim Campbell. JP Morgan wanted to get its money out of a fund, and I can explain why they would invest in a fund, but it's complex. They had money with a fund, right? They wanted to take it out when they got suspicious, okay? They were told that there were Colombian drug lords that would not be happy if JP Morgan took their money out. And that's when JP Morgan went to the financial authority there. So JP Morgan was threatened. Incredible. So how do you feel personally at this stage of the game? You know, I really enjoy the interviews and everything and that whole process and telling the story because the big thing is the story's untold. Everybody thinks they know the story about Madoff, but they don't. As you just heard, all these things are largely unknown. The second thing is between interviews, I have a lot of stress because here we got the equivalent of millions of free advertising from CBS and Amazon ran out of books in two days and it killed us. And so in between the interviews and stuff, we have this angst when whatever's wrong or we can't get a review in the Wall Street Journal, which upsets me. And it's these kinds of things. So I try to keep that in perspective. You know, as McGraw-Hill, my job is just to sell books as a performing monkey right now. And they're supposed to be running all of that stuff, the supply chain. But I don't have confidence in it. So as I told them, and I said, you know, you guys have to do your friggin' job. What did they uh, say when you told them that? I chewed my editor out for 90 minutes, and I mean, just brutal. And by the way, she ended up with the worst language I've ever heard. We got to, you know, it went all right and everything. They blamed it on Amazon. Amazon had a regional logistics warehouse problem. But I said, you know, Casey, in the end, and she may see this interview, by the way, when it comes out, in the end, the man of the moon could have done it. That doesn't matter to me. The supply chain has to work, and we got to fix this problem because we're not going to get any more CBS Sunday morning interviews, you know. Yeah. And they know that that's my style. I'm straightforward and obnoxious. You're revealing something to people that don't know much about the book promotion business, and it's a little bit of a dirty secret, but most publishers are not particularly exceptional at marketing books. They leave the bulk of the work to the brand name and the platform and the hard work of the author. 
The power of Amazon is unbelievable. McGraw-Hill's afraid of them, literally. And this is what Amazon did to me. The book's out. So right on there, it says, you know, out of stock and you can't order it. Right below it, somebody has written a book called A Summary of Madoff Talks by Jim Campbell. It's six pages. They're selling it as a Kindle for $7, right? Now, Amazon wants to sell my Kindle because they have no books. They lowered it to 15 So here's a guy with essentially a scam book, and they put it right underneath mine. Can somebody write a book like I, that? So I go right to McGraw-Hill, and I say, this can't be legal, can it? And they're ripping me off. They're charging half of what my Kindle is for 10 years of intellectual proprietary capital, and they said they can't really do anything unless you can prove that it's copied word for word. Worst one just came up. If you look now, there's another one under me called Madoff something or other, and it says it's 120 pages, so my marketing person bought it. It's 120 pages of blank lines, and it's selling on Amazon, right? Oh, my goodness. Yep. Oh, my and goodness. And again, because my book wasn't available. It just seems so sleazy to me. Yeah, that's really something. Imagine when you buy that and you think you're getting your book, and instead you're getting the blank pages. You're not going to be too happy and about you're it. You're probably not going to go back and buy mine then. I've had in the past people put on, let's say, executive programs, Usually it's an individual doing it. For example, my last book was Super Bosses, as you know, and the program is called Super Bosses. And the guy is on there talking about it and he's selling seats for this. And he does somewhere say that I wrote this book, but that's the end of it. He's just basically taking what I took, 10 years of hard work. Now that's legal? I, I mean, believe he got a cease and desist, oh, but okay. a big deal. That's not going to change anything. I think the right attitude here, now we're going to be Zen-like to wrap up, right, is, you know, we're getting our word out. Our hard work is being shared around the world with more and more people. We don't always get all the benefit of that, and that's going to rub us the wrong way, but hopefully yeah. we'll get a reasonable amount of benefit, and then people will know, people will understand much more about Bernie Madoff, because that's what you did. You, you know, thank you, you because there are about, you're about the third person who has told me, Jim, relax, breathe, do every day like it's an interview, like your regular interviews. Don't say, oh my God, I got 15 publicity period. I'm going to be, a, you know, and it works. I had to train myself for a solid week before CBS because I've never done national TV. And by the time they showed up, I was completely relaxed and I enjoyed it. And they were enraptured by everything I said. So they were listening. The cameramen were. The cameramen went and recommended me to a documentary producer he knows who did contact me. So it is very nice. And by the way, I want to say you do this. I don't see any notes. I don't see anything. But this just came out of your mind as you went through. So it's a kind of a beautiful thing to be able to sit through and watch your mind operate and how you, you know, get to the next point. Well, thank you, Jim. You give me good material to be curious about. And that's kind of what I've made my career on curiosity and you make it easy. Jim Campbell, thanks for being on the Sidcast. Thanks for sharing your saga, your story, the Madoff story. It's really fantastic. Not just because you kind of figured this out and figured out things others haven't figured out, but this is 10 years later when everyone thought we knew everything we needed to know. And here you come and you say, actually, that's not quite right. You guys missed a lot. And here's what I discovered. And it's based on hours and hours of communicating and interviewing with Bernie and his family. And this can be part of the historical record. So, Jim, best of luck. We'll look forward to seeing that documentary. It might take another few years, so relax. Uh, <laughs> yeah, relax. On, on Netflix. And I know that you and I will be in touch some more. Great, Sid. You guys are a mentor. I love the tuck where I wear it to graduates. Thank you for your time. Thanks for inviting me back for a second one. You're the first and only person so far in the SIDCAST to get oh. a return visit. So there you go. Thank you. Jim Campbell, take care. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three 
and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.